We've been in a series on the book of Acts, and um, we, we've kind of gone through several weeks of it. Uh, today, we're taking a, a bit of a hiatus from the series. We're kind of taking a pause. Um, I, I've been making this comparison to the book of Acts, um, with the book of Acts to a TV show, kind of saying, you know, there's season one and season two. So today would be that episode where you sit down on the couch and you tune in, and it's not your show. It's like the Olympics or something, you know, it's something different. Um, so this is, this is a change up from our Acts series. And, and the title of, of, of our talk together this morning is Who We Are. Who are we? And, and I thought it might be an appropriate time for us to kind of discuss this because here we are. Many of us have been with New Life Downtown for the last several months. Many of you have been with New Life Church for, the, for several years. And, uh, and, but some of you, maybe this is kind of your first sort of uh, step into it. You're new to New Life or you're new to church or you're, maybe you're new to the Jesus thing. Maybe you're not even with the Jesus thing. You just saw that the doors were open and people were smiling, you know. You're like, hey, what's going on on Sunday morning? But, but um, with this, this, this talk this morning is for us to say, who are we? What are we about? You know, if any of you have been part of um, recreational uh, sports leagues or basketball leagues, or you remember uh, maybe when you were in high school or maybe in college you did intramurals or whatever, there, there's something that happens when you bond with your team, right? And you do this activity together and you, you start do, doing this stuff. I mean, right now, football season's about to start back up. I know college has, but the real football season, NFL is about to kick. I mean, I, yeah. anyway, sorry. Uh-oh, I just lost half my feet. I'll go over here now. Um, we... We're, you know, we're about to start the NFL, and there's something about a team with a shared purpose and a shared vision, and they're going in the same direction, right? But a funny thing happens during the off-season. And if you're a sports person, you kind of know that you kind of watch this because during the season, everybody's unified. But then in the off-season, you know, you have guys doing funny things, and then they're getting arrested or whatever. And then they'll ask, the, sometimes, sadly, there's good things they do too. But then, but then you'll, you know, they'll ask the teammates, hey, what do you think about your teammate getting, you know, the DUI? And they sort of act like they don't even know him. You know, they're like, oh, man, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, so there's kind of this distance. And you wonder sometimes, I thought you guys were like best friends. And there's this thing that happens when we bond around activity. It's usually a very quick bond, isn't it? It's like, boom, we're in this shared activity. We got this goal. We're going to win. And it happens very quickly. And all of a sudden, you're moving together. But how many of you have been on teams where you were super close while the season was going on? And then when the season was over, like you returned next year and you weren't on the team and you passed each other in the hallway and they were like, oh, whatever. You're like, don't you remember? Or maybe it's the missions trip thing, the missions team. You go on this team, you're in Africa, you're like sweating together, you've gone days without showers and no one's judged the other person. And then you get back and you're like, oh, yeah, no, I, you know, I mean, we're not really like friends, friends. We were just on this team together. It's possible to bond over activity, but I, I suggest that when you bond around activity, though it is a quick bond, it's not necessarily a deep bond. And what I want to suggest to us this morning is as a church, we want to bond around identity, not activity. We want to bond around a common identity. Who are we? So that even when an activity is over, maybe you'll, some of you are serving on our teams and it takes a big team to do all the stuff that we do on Sundays. And I, and I think we need more to join that team. But there'll be seasons where some people will say, you know what, I need to step back from the team. It ought not to be the case that when you stop serving, you lose connectedness to one another, right? There's got to be a bond that's greater than just the shared activity. It's got to be a shared identity. And so this morning we're going to say, what is that identity? How are we going to unpack this? We've been in the book of Acts, and Acts was written by Luke. And so this morning we're going to pull a couple of verses from Luke's gospel. 
Luke has this scene. He's a, I don't know if this is the way he works as a writer, but if you're a fiction person, you're a poet type, you, you know this. When you get to know a certain writer, you discover that in their books, there are these scenes, these motifs that kind of keep reappearing. And you're like, oh, it's that kind of scene again, this writer. Luke does that. He has several themes, several pictures, several scenes, if you're a visual artist type, that, that Luke kind of replays. One of them in his gospel is the scene of Jesus taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, and giving it. It happens three times in Luke's gospel. One of the times it happens is when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. The other time it happens is when Jesus is at the Passover with his disciples. But the last time it happens is a very interesting one. It's in Luke 24, verse 30 to 31. Turn there if you would. The recap of the story is Jesus is, is after his resurrection, only not everyone knows that he's, been, that he's risen. And so he's walking on the road, the road to Emmaus with these two disciples. Now I was told if I walk out here that some of you won't be able to see me because I'm fairly dark complected. Um, <laughs> but I just want to see your faces, so I'm going to do it anyway, okay? Um, so, so, so Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and, and these two guys are, are sad and Jesus says, what's up with you guys? Why are you so sad? And they're like, dude, if you've been living under a rock? He's kind of like, well, maybe, um, sort of, in a manner of speaking. And, 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 uh, and they're like, dude, there's this guy who we thought he was the Messiah. We had hoped. And there's this tremendous language of hope and disappointment. And they say, but, but he was crucified and all this stuff. And, and then Jesus acts like he's going to go on. They, they stop. And I love the way Luke says, Jesus acts as if he's going to go on to the next town, waiting for an invitation. Man, there's so much in this story. And these two disciples say, we should invite him to eat with us. And they said, stranger, would you eat with us? And all of a sudden, the stranger, the guest, becomes the host. It's an odd thing. It's a very, Luke is showing us something special has happened here. The guest becomes the host. And so Jesus, all of a sudden, it says in verse 30, after he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread. Wait a minute. I didn't think guests did that. He took the bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but then he disappeared from their sight. There's something about the blessed, the taken, the blessed, the breaking, the blessing, the breaking and the giving that Jesus does repeatedly. And there's something about Jesus doing it that made the disciples say, "Uh uh-oh, we've seen this one before. This is a signature move. This is not like, you know, this is like MJ's white glove sort of moonwalk. I mean, this is like a patented Jesus move. He blessed, Michael Jackson, anybody? No? Okay, all right. <laughs> blessed, broke, gave. And Luke's trying to tell us when Jesus did that, their eyes were open. Something about those actions sparked, opened their eyes. And so I want to use those three words this morning, blessed, broken, given to talk about our identity as the people of God. So the first one here, we are blessed. Now, I I don't know if you've grown up in church or you've been around Christians, but but Christians use this word all the time, don't we? You know, and sometimes, how are you today? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. And some some of you love that, and some of you, it makes your skin kind of crawl, to the point that we we don't even like the word blessed. I mean, some people even replace the word blessed with the word lucky. I mean, who would do that, you know? Okay. But this word blessed is a wonderful word. It means God 
pouring out something upon us beyond what we deserve. We are blessed. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 1. He says, Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We heard this in our New Testament reading. He has blessed us in Christ. If you have a, a Bible with you that you can highlight with your finger or circle with a pen or whatever, circle this phrase, in Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ, circle that again, to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ, circle that phrase, because of his love. This was according to his goodwill and plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the son whom he loves. We have been ransomed through his sons. You can circle that again, blood. And we have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace. Somebody say, thank God. I mean, look, we could sit on those verses for a year and say, look, When someone says, I'm blessed, it's not the Christian alternative to, I'm good. It's way, way more cosmic and epic than that. To say that, look, we are blessed. You don't get it. To say that, when I say I am blessed, when we say as the people of God we've been blessed, what we're trying to say is, look, without Christ we were lost. Without Jesus, we were crushing, being crushed under the weight of guilt and shame, under the burden of obligation, under the weight of trying to do better. And all of a sudden, God in Christ came and said, you are now in me. And because you're in me, everything I have is yours. That's amazing. That is remarkable. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, who are we as human beings and, and culture at one point used to begin with the premise that human beings are flawed and we're selfish and that was sort of ground zero. But somewhere along the way, maybe certain psychologists or certain theories kind of came out. We don't need to tell people that they're sinners because that's so deflating. And really what people need to believe is that they're, they're really special. And really the only thing that, that leads people into unhealthy, destructive social behaviors which we like to call sin, is that people have low self-esteem. And we just need to affirm people that they really truly are in their heart of hearts a wonderful person. The gospel is so wonderful because unlike any religion or any philosophy in the world, it tells us two things that we at our core know are, are true. One, try as we might, we will always fall short. We're always going to let somebody down. We know this. I don't need like apologetics to prove this. I am exhibit A. (laughs) Your own heart shows you every time I try, I fail. I want to believe that I am at my core a good person. And so what's scary to me is then there are Christians that have sort of adopted kind of the pop psychology thing and said, okay, you know, we just need to tell people that they don't have a sin nature anymore, that really in Christ they have a good heart and everything's good. And, and really, once you come to Jesus, you can trust your heart. But the gospel says to us, once we come to Christ, we're given a new nature, but there's work to be done to still kill the old one. And so how do we account for the fact that we desire good things but so often fall short of doing them? What 
framework, what religion, what philosophy, what psychological thinking explains that better than the gospel does? That says, well, that impulse for good is the image of God in you. But the inability to actually live that way, the bentness. Remember, Martin Luther said, sinful nature is essentially self, your life bending in on itself, curving in on itself. You ever tried to drive a car? It's a beautiful car, but it's just a little bit out of alignment. It doesn't matter whether you share Calvin's view of total depravity or the Eastern Orthodox view of a bent nature. The point is, we can't drive this thing straight. Right? We've got the nicest car in the world. We've got the best of intentions, but it just keeps on leading to selfishness. And the gospel tells us that while we were yet sinners, while we were still bent in on ourselves and selfishness and destruction, God came in Christ and died for us so that now in Christ we are chosen, verse 4 says. God wanted us. We've been chosen. We've been adopted. Verse 5, you belong. I mean, think of these things. These are the things to sort of meditate on when you feel like, I don't know who I am. And I, don't know. I mean, is this really? And to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Even in my worst, God chose me. Even at my worst, God made a way to adopt me, to bring me into his family. Verse 7 says, we've been ransomed and forgiven. Those are all powerful words. Chosen, adopted, ransomed, forgiven. The gospel says to us, yep, things were worse than you thought, but God loves you more than you know, and he rescued you. And for anyone who is in Christ, you can say, I've been chosen. I was never chosen for anything. I've been adopted. I never felt like I belonged, but now I belong I've been ransomed. You mean there's no chains or addictions or slavery that's strong enough to hold me? I've been freed? I've been forgiven? You mean this guilt thing? I don't have to... And now you see how powerful it is to say we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. I appreciate the qualifier that Paul gives us because this ain't about Lexuses and bettered bank accounts or... Those are different kinds of blessings, but the blessings we rejoice most over are the spiritual ones. Amen? If we go on, say, okay, we are blessed, but we are also broken. Now, this word broken can be used in a number of ways. One way that we're used to hearing this word broken is, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't do a good job of that. After all, I am broken. Uh, that's a legitimate way to use the word. That's not how we're using it this morning. When I say we are broken, what, I, what I'm picturing, picture with me, is Jesus taking your life, blessing it, and then Jesus breaking it. You're saying, wait a minute, Jesus breaking my life? I like the blessed stuff. What's this broken stuff? <laughs> See, a funny thing happens along the way of following Jesus. We don't get long in the course of discipleship and following Jesus before Jesus says, Oh, now that you belong to this family, the way we live around here is that we lay down our lives for one another. We become broken for one another. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2. He says, Don't do anything for selfish purposes. Wow. Well, that cuts down a lot of things. But with humility, think of others as better than yourselves. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Because you're thinking of others 
more. This is what it means to be broken. Instead of each person watching out for their own good, watch out for what is better for others. Imagine if husbands and wives lived this way. I'm tired, honey, but is there anything I can do? To take, you know, maybe leave out that first part later. Even, you know. Hey, what is there? Can I... Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Some translations neaten it up by saying servant, but Paul's unashamedly there using the word doulos, slave, household slave. And if you think that's below you, he's talking about Jesus took on the form of the slave. There's nowhere lower to go. And by becoming like human beings, and when he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, friends, to be sure, the cross is about atonement. It's about God doing for us what we could not do. But the cross is also the ultimate picture of what a mature Christian life looks like. There's lots of books, lots of curriculums, all good and wonderful that say this is the key to discipleship and this is the key to... Listen, we can say it in one picture. If you're an artistic, poetic person, you can close your eyes and picture this with me. What does being a mature Christian look like? It looks like this. It looks like giving up your life for someone else. It looks like saying, I am willing to be broken for the sake of nourishing someone else. That's... It's a pattern for us. Verse 5, adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Or the the NIV says it, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Take on a new mindset. We all know that repentance is changing your mind, but it's not just a saying no to something, it's a saying yes to something new, right? How how, how many of you know that it doesn't do any good to say, well, I'm not going to go south on I-25, I'm not going to go south on I-25, I'm not going to go... The best way to not go south on I-25 is to get on and head north. And Jesus calls us out of this other way of living and he blesses us and he says, okay, this is the new way to live. You are now broken. Live this way. Take on this mind. There's many ways we could say, well, what does this look like? This morning I want to give us kind of two sub-words to, to think about when we think about community life and being broken. And the first word is Humility. Humility. It's interesting in the first century that Paul writes so much about humility because there are many overlaps between Paul and and Aristotelian virtue ethics and some of you are philosophy guys at UCCS, you're familiar with virtue. But the the one thing when Paul would have preached some of these things, some of the Greeks would have said, amen, brother. But then when Paul started talking about humility, nobody would have said amen. Are you kidding me, Paul? That's weakness. That's not all that different from our culture, is it? Humility as a virtue, like no, no, it's self-assertedness. It's taking care of yourself, looking out for yourself. Do you know, I, I want to specifically this morning just shed light on one angle of humility, and that's the humility of asking for something that you need. If, commu- if life in community is going to work, to say we are broken for one another, it's the community. Think about breaking of bread. It's community life, church life together. If we're really going to be a community, you're going to have to embrace the humility of asking for what you need. 
said, well, I don't know. I mean, I've been part of this church for six years and nobody's ever met my needs. Really? Well, did you ever say to someone that you need it? No, but nobody ever offered. I mean, why doesn't the church have a moving service to help me move from my, this house to that? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe there could have been some guys. That, did, you, did, you, did you ever ask? Well, no. There's a certain humility that you have to take on to say, I need help, right? I've been in this position a lot lately because of all this truck and cases and moving stuff. Yesterday, a couple of our guys, Chris Burley and Jin, I don't know if you're in here, I mean, they spent like 12 hours yesterday running around, getting our truck, like the VIN verification done and the DMV and fixing our cases and all that stuff. And I just, I felt in this spot at my, at my house and we had plans, we were having people over and I couldn't be there to help. And, I, and I'm, I'm sitting there texting with these guys and I'm feeling worse and worse by the minute because you feel guilty when people help you, right? Do you know what that is? It's pride. And I felt this guilt of like, I don't know, man, he's doing so much. And what can I, what can I do back? You know, can I send him to Disney, Disneyland? You know? <laughs> I can't, okay, if you're in here, Jin and Chris, I can't. I just want to repay. But listen, where do we learn the humility of receiving something we don't deserve? We learn it from the gospel. So you mean the we are blessed gospel part leads to the we are broken community part? Yeah. Here's Evan. He was part of the crew that was fixing cases yesterday too. Sorry, bro. Sorry. Thank you. There's a grace, that, there's a humility that comes when you say, you know what, I've got to ask for something and I know that I can't repay. I know that I can't owe you one. Hey man, next time you got road cases, I'm your man. <laughs> you know what? You can't repay this. And think about in a marriage, so many times a spouse says, well, well, he should know. Well, she ought to know. That's what I love to do. And I mean, why, would, why wouldn't she plan this party? Why wouldn't he? How come he didn't bring I mean, he ought to know this. <laughs> and the assumption that we need to bring into our community life together is that our natural tendency is going to be selfishness. And the only way to help each other out of that is to have the humility, the brokenness that says, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask and say, you know, I, I, I need this. I, I would love this. I, I would appreciate this. Which is why I think for all of you that are single in here, the view of marriage that we've been served up has been a lie. Because the view that's been served up to us as a culture is, if you find the perfect person, they'll be the right fit. But the lie is this, the lie is you don't ever really need to change that much if you find the right person. Because marriage is like two jigsaw puzzle pieces that fit together and they live happily ever after. And all the married people in the room laughed as your amen. <laughs> so yeah, right, brother. Marriage is all about saying, how can I serve you? Well, how can I serve you? And to let yourself receive it and say, I don't deserve this. And for the other person to say, I know, but I didn't deserve what Christ did for me either. And it's the gospel that fills us up and says, you know, I didn't deserve anything that God has lavished on me, but because he's lavished it on me, I can lavish it on you. That's where this goes. We are blessed. We are broken. The second word with this broken thing is forgiveness. Church life is going to get messy. Warning. 
Disclaimer. This isn't about forming another church community and wow, this one's better and this one's going to be perfect. This is not going to be perfect. Let me just let you down gently or not so gently. You remember a few weeks ago we quoted the Bonhoeffer quote out of Life Together where he says, look, it's necessary for every Christian to become disillusioned with Christian community. What? What is Bonhoeffer saying? He's saying it's, you have to become disillusioned with Christian community because then you're not imposing your ideal of community onto something else. But you're then able to receive the gift of fellowship as a gift, as a grace, and you're able to embrace the opportunity to forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, he says, Be kind, compassionate, forgiving to each other in the same way that God forgave you in Christ. Christian community is not meant to be a utopia. We have a different way of living. We have a different value system. But we're going to fail each other. Marriages, one day a husband's going to wake up and say, say, who did I marry? Who is this person? The wife's going to say, oh my gosh, I thought I could change him. And I was wrong. <laughs> friends, I thought we were friends. We were tight. And then he didn't invite me to that thing. and I saw his pictures on Instagram. <laughs> Our whole Bible study was there except for me. The Christian community, the engine of the Christian community is forgiveness and humility. It's this gospel thing that what we receive from Christ, we pass out to others. I, I would love, as your pastor, to be at every one of your weddings, to do every premarital counseling. And this year it feels like I am doing every premarital counseling. <laughs> it's like three couples simultaneously. Thankfully, didn't make any embarrassing mix-ups, you know, like... Now, you guys had that one issue, right? No, no. Anyway, I don't do that. I take notes. I would love to do all the premarrials. I would love to do all the weddings. I would love to be at every funeral. I would love to visit every dinner group. Holly and I made it to six out of 17. But you know, as much as I would love to do that, the truth is I wouldn't be a good pastor if I did that. Because Paul says my role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Right? Paul says, my role is to preach the gospel to you so that Jesus and what he has done for us gets so inside of you and the Spirit of God fills you that you come into this place saying, who can I encourage today? Who can I be a blessing to? Who can I serve this week? The, The Freely Give, Freely Receive board is out in the lobby. Have you seen it? It's this wooden board on this side. It's got blue cards and yellow cards and one of them is for things you can offer and the other is for things you need. Bobby Nicholas, our local ministries pastor, was out there and he goes, Glenn, I don't know if people are looking at these. And he pulls like two or three of them and he goes, this need is met by what this person can offer. I was like, really? And he goes, and this one meets this one. I was like, dude, it's like the matching game, you know? (laughs) I have little kids. Um, But that's what this is for, right? So make it a habit to say, you know, I'm just going to prayerfully go out to that board and look for some of those things and say, you know what? Hey, I can meet that need. Hey, we can take care of that. Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. And all of a sudden, it's not a program or a bureaucracy or a thing that is caring for us. It's the church that's caring for one another. Amen? This is how it's supposed to work. And all along the way, there's forgiveness and humility and humility and forgiveness back and forth. The third word. 
One more thing before I say this. Another place where we kind of form as community, because I said, look, my, my role is to kind of set the table for you guys and encourage you guys and equip you guys, and I trust the Spirit of God in you to lead you to, to, to love and care, be broken for one another. One of the other places for that is our dinner groups. How many of you were part of dinner groups this summer, our, our meal groups? Okay, we did a bunch of them. We did like 17 of them this summer. I want to launch more this fall. And the, and the thing is very simple. Between now and the end of the year, between now and Christmas, meet five times. Again, we did five times in the summer. We'll do five times again this fall. We can reshuffle the deck. I'm going to have an informational meeting about all this, about if you're like, what, is, what does it mean to host a meal group or a house fellowship? What does this look like? After service, two weeks from today, meet me right here. We'll talk more about it. And then we'll have a training, a training evening at, at, um, at one of our, our, our congregants' homes downtown. And I'll talk to you more about what, what to do to facilitate this. It's really simple. Eat, pray, share your stories. It's, it's like breathing in and breathing out. But if you're interested in this, at the end of the service, Rebecca will be over here and she'll take your names down. I can email you with more info. But I, I am, I, there's something that happens when we physically break bread. Our lives become broken for each other as well. Something about that. It's a, it's a mystery. Third word, given. We are blessed, we are broken, we are given. This has to do with mission. So we are blessed is the gospel. We are broken is community. We are given is mission. Do you know that we exist for more than ourselves? Do you know that Jesus didn't save us so that he can airlift us out of this awful world one day? Rather, we are colonizing earth with the culture of heaven. That's what it means to believe in the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ, we've been talking about this as we've studied Acts, when Jesus ascended into heaven, this isn't Jesus the spaceman going back to his home planet like E.T. or something. All of the language of the Gospels about the Ascension is Jesus being enthroned. And a king on a throne means we are his people. We're part of this kingdom. And we're on earth here with a mission. That's why we say we do things in Jesus' name. We proclaim the Gospel. We embody the Gospel. We preach the Gospel. We embody the Gospel by serving. We proclaim the good news and we give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. All of it goes together. We are given. There's a beautiful phrase that several streams of the church, kind of more historic church, uses, and it's this phrase, for the life of the world. In fact, there's a, if you're interested in this, there's a, there's a famous Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox theology book called For the Life of the World, written by Alexander Schmemann, and it's about how the Eucharist is the symbol of Christian mission and Christian life. We receive from God, and then it goes out, for the life of the world. The story that is a picture of this is the first Jesus blessing, breaking, and giving bread story in Luke. It's the story of him feeding the 5,000. I won't read it this morning because you know it. Basically, the disciples say to Jesus, hey, send them away. It's dinner time. It's late. We ain't got nothing. And Jesus looks at him and says, you give them something to eat. Like, I'm sorry, what? Didn't you just hear? We, we, no. This is so powerful because Oftentimes we hear this word that we're given for the world and we instantly think, yes, yes, Glenn, someday, if everything goes well according to my business plan and my investment plan and my retirement account, someday I'll be in the place where I can give. But, but right now, Glenn, I have nothing to give. And Jesus says, that's not true. Because in the kingdom, a little boy with two loaves, four loaves, what is this? <laughs> Five loaves and two fish. We should have read it. 
<laughs> oh, that ruined the climactic moment. In the kingdom, a little boy with five loaves and two fish in the hands of Jesus is more than five loaves and two fish. Right? So I don't have much. Glenn, you don't understand. I've got no time. I'm so busy. I've got, I'm so stressed. I mean, what, how can I be given for the life of the world? I mean, that's all this high, fancy talk. Save that for you full-time ministry guys. All you do is sit around anyway, right? No. But still, it's interesting to me that Jesus talks to his disciples. He says, you give them something to eat. But you know who comes up with the something? It ain't the church leadership. It's a boy in the congregation. I love that. There are things that God has put in our hearts as a church for the city, but the solution is not, I would, I would bet you, the solution nine times out of ten is not from a staff person at New Life Church. It's from the church of New Life Church, the people of New Life Church. We become the answer. So, 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 so let's eliminate this kind of language. Don't ever speak about New Life Church in third-person language. Don't ever say they or you. Second person. Don't, don't ever say, hey, what are you doing for this? I, I'll rebuke you on the spot. <laughs> Don't ever say, hey, what are they doing up there for Thanksgiving turkeys this year? Don't say that. We speak in first-person language. What are we doing? What can we do? What can I bring? I don't have much. I got five loaves and two. I mean, I don't have much. But can Jesus bless it and break it and give it for the life of the world? Yes, he can, and he does. That's what we're about. We don't exist for our own sake. In our sermon in Acts 8, we talked about this, the joy of the city for the shalom of the city. This is why we're here. We seek the wholeness, the flourishing of our city. One of the plans in my heart for us just to facilitate this is in time as our house fellowship, dinner groups, meal groups, whatever we call them, house fellowships, as those begin to gain momentum, my goal long term is that let's say you're gathering twice a month. All of a sudden we say, all right, how about once a month instead of you eight or you ten eating and praying for one another, you make it a house party. Invite the neighbors. Bring the dog. Your coworkers. Your classmates, come one, come all. We're just going to eat together. Nobody's got to stand up and bring in the net. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what this is for. And all of a sudden, your community becomes missional. And this thing of being together and connected in community becomes outward flowing and it becomes missional. Come on, let's just have this part. I know some of you are already doing it. And I love it. You're ahead of me, and that's even better. Matt Howard and Bryce and Brian, your house parties. Bring it. The early church had such rowdy house parties. Now, don't get carried away here. But they had, they had such rowdy house parties that secular historians suspected that there was orgies going on. Not to be gross. I'm just saying they had, it was a good time. It was loud. It was festive. There was joy. This was not, come to my house. We're a bunch of Christians together. We're going to say the creed. You can do that here. <laughs> But when you have these house parties, I want you to have food and a great time because the joy of the kingdom is going out into the city. Amen? That's what it's for. Bobby Michaelis, if you'd come. Bobby's our local ministries pastor. Bobby gets asked all the time, hey, what is new life doing? Again, that's a code way of talking about new life in third person. Scrap that language. 
What are we doing? How can I? How can we? And so Bobby gets asked all the time, so, so what, what's, our, what's our philosophy? How do we work with stuff in the city? And I want you, Bobby, just to say a few words about uh, the, the wonderful agencies in the city and how we decided what we, where our piece is in this. Yeah, sure. So I think sometimes we're removed from the decisions uh, and, and the ways we make the decisions about how we engage the city. And so the first things we do when we recognize a need or someone comes with an idea for a homeless ministry or something like this, we say, great, that's a great idea. Let's take a look at what's going on in the city. Let's look at some other models. Look, turns out there's three other really great places that we can partner with, with resources and time. So why don't we see how we can connect with them? So that's the first thing we do, um, is to see what's going on in the city. And turns out there's a lot of really great things going on in the city that other churches are leading and other organizations are leading. So that's kind of the first Right, step. and there's no need to reinvent the wheel, duplicate no efforts. Or, yep. the wheel. Yeah, we're all on the same page as following Christ, united in our weakness. Amen. And so uh, that, that's the first thing we do in that way. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes. So, so as you've connected, and, and Bobby and the team, Matthew Ayers and others, have, have really worked hard at saying, okay, here's what Springs Rescue Mission does, here's what this place does, here's what they're all doing well. And in conversation with those guys, we've sort of asked, okay, so where are some of the gaps and, and how can we fill it? But another piece of this is kind of our philosophy. Uh, again, if, you're, if you work for organizations that do these kinds of things, you recognize you really have a choice to make whether you, you, you want to do a little bit for a lot of people and have a scattershot approach, or if you're going to zero in and say, we're going to do, try to do a lot for a small group of people over the long haul. Tell us about the philosophy we've chosen. And you like. Yeah, sure. So we, we do do some things a little bit for the short haul, and we connect with people in that way where we're meeting needs, but it turns out a ministry, if you can call it that, which is really just a reflection of our relationship with Christ, you know, when I minister by riding my bike and I'm just sharing love or, or however it looks like, but the ministries we've chosen, it turns out they take a long time to see the fruition of that, and there's love in the beginning, and then there's forgiveness along the way, and three years down the road, you can invite them to church, maybe, and they'll, they'll trust you. So we're really choosing uh, to do a good job of being committed to people, specific people that we feel have been in our heart. They're a reflection of leaders who have come to us and say, I have this gifting for foster kids or whatever it is, and we're sticking those things out for the long haul. So in 10 years, we can look back and say, look how our family has grown because we've We've mm-hmm. seen it through the thick, and yep. it's been hurtful and hard and difficult. So that's a little bit more the direction we're going with local ministry, is to choose a couple of things and do them really well, so that when we're engaging people with love through ministry, mm-hmm. we're reflecting the nature and character of God as consistent and faithful and Amen. true. And we're, we're doing things with excellence, which is really exciting, because people start to say, that looks like something I've heard about, like a <laughs> perfect God or something like that. I've heard something like this. Praise God. Tell us the one thing today... That it's, it's a, a, a way for us to kind of jump in on this. Yeah, great. So before I do that, there are, Glenn hit it right on the head. Hopefully, the things we're doing in the city are a reflection of you guys and not my good ideas because I have a lot, but that's my identity. And you all have things in your heart that are going to be reflected in the city as we come together and, and do these things. So just to say that, as we grow, it's going to be your ideas, not mine. But the one thing right now, we're, we're committed to the Knob Hill community, which is a community just a couple blocks away, highest homicide rate in the city. And we're committed to that community. And we've been feeling that out, what that looks like for a couple of years. And we know for sure um, getting in with the youth is huge. A lot of these kids don't have strong influence. And so we have committed for the long haul to mentoring in Queen Palmer Elementary. And what that means for us in this, in this room is we're asking for mentors who can commit one hour with one child once a week. And you, you take out Thanksgiving break and Christmas break. One hour, one child, one time a week. Yeah, so for me, I'm going to get up an hour earlier, one day a week. 
I'm going to drive to school and have lunch with these kids because 95% of them or so are on school lunch program, breakfast and lunch. So I'm going to go have breakfast with these kids in the cafeteria. And uh, it'll probably be a little bit awkward at first, and then I'll get to know their name and we'll hit it off. And a year down the road, we'll see, man, he has just grown because I have Christ in me, and that's accidentally spilling out in our relationship. So that's what I'm asking you today. The one thing, if you're saying, how can I get involved? Leah Cowles is here, who has stepped up. Uh, this mentoring program, by the way, started because I said, there's an idea for mentoring, but we can't do it right now. I don't have capacity. And Leah said, oh, this has been in my heart for almost 20 years. And I think I, I could maybe lead it, maybe. I don't know what that looks like. And she's doing an amazing job. She's here today in the hall. Yeah, she'll be in the lobby right this side here. If you see that sign, they've got a, a display on a table on this side of the lobby. So, so that's the one way. One hour with one kid once a week. We'll get to know families. We'll get to know the community. We can walk to church with them from their house. So. That's awesome. Thank you, Bobby. New Life Church as a whole, when we talk about these three things, the words we use are worship, connect, serve. You've seen that on the website. You'll hear it if you come to a guest reception. It's worship, connect, serve. But I recognize that for some, some of you, like me, you're more visual. You want, it, you, want to, you want to see it in a story. And so the story that you can enter and participate in is blessed, broken, given. That's what this is. The gospel, the community, the mission. Blessed, broken, given. For the life of the world to the glory of God. Now, that gets to be a mouthful. So here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a phrase that if someone says, oh, you know what the phrase is? This is the phrase. A Eucharistic people. You're like, oh, good Glenn, that's not going to help. A Eucharistic people? I know, but some of you will like it. The reason I want to give you this phrase is because what do we do every Sunday when we gather to worship? We gather around the Eucharist. And every time you come to the Eucharist, we're not just remembering Christ, but we're reaffirming our identity as the people of God. We're saying, Jesus, thank you that your life was given for me. Thank you for the gospel that has blessed me. Now make my life broken and given for the life of the world. That's why communion comes toward the end of the service, because our dismissal is not a dismissal, it's a commissioning. It's saying, now God, as we have received grace from you at your table, send us out, Lord, into the world. Blessed, broken, given. We are a Eucharistic people. The Eucharist becomes the central symbol for who we are as the people of God. A couple sentences to unpack that. To be a Eucharistic people is to receive each blessing as a grace from God. Some of you language people will like this. In the word Eucharist is this word charis. Anybody know what charis means? Grace. Eucharist itself means thanksgiving. Grace makes us thankful. To be Eucharistic people is to receive everything, each blessing as a grace from God and to offer it back to Him in thanksgiving for the sake of others. There you go. So we can say it little, we can say it long. This language needs to shape us. To be a Eucharistic people is to be blessed, broken, and given. Let's pray this morning.